Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? You know, last week, I mentioned on a tech news episode that Johnny Ive, a.k.a. Sir Jonathan, a.k.a. Jonathan Paul Ive, has pretty much completely broken ties with Apple, and that this is a big deal. Uh, At the very least, it's what you would call an historic moment. Uh, So Johnny, who spells his name J-O-N-Y, because of course he does, uh, first joined Apple way back in 1992 and had a hand in designing tons of Apple products from the iconic iPhone to Apple's spaceship-like headquarters. He's had a hand in all of that. His reputation is one of perfectionism and critical attention to the smallest of details. He also earned a reputation for being somewhat coddled by Apple. You know, you could say that reputation might be unfairly earned, but he has one. And some would even say he cared far more about the form of a product 
than he did for the function. And he certainly had issues with that throughout his career. But today I thought we would go into a lot more detail on his life. In fact, so much detail that it's going to require more than one episode. So this is part one. And before I really get started, I want to shout out a book that I used as a a primary source for this episode or these episodes. That book is titled After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. And it's written by Trip Mickle. Now, as that title suggests, the book primarily focuses on what happened at Apple in the wake of Steve Jobs's death in 2011 and how folks like Tim Cook and Johnny Ive would change the course of the company and somewhat kind of battle against each other in that process. It's a good book. And while the title does indicate a particular perspective and and narrative there, it is not just an opinion piece. In fact, Mickle cites more than 414 sources. I know because the PDF that comes with the audiobook has 62 pages that's just a list of all the citations. He also includes a bibliography of works that complement his own. Those works include books and movies and more. It's really impressive stuff. Anyway, I don't know Mickle personally. I have no connection to him. I don't have any connection to this book. I just thought I would give it a shout out if you are interested, because the information I'm going to be talking about here, a lot of it, there's a lot more detail in the book. But uh, it's not the only source I used, but it is a prime source. And also, like I said, I got the audiobook, so it's available on platforms like Audible. So let's get to Johnny Ive and Apple. Johnny Ive was born near London in 1967. His father was a teacher who taught design and technology at what we would consider the high school level. His mother taught theology and later on became a therapist. And Ive's grandfather was a machinist. And Johnny's father, in addition to his teaching job, had also tried his hand at silversmithing. So Johnny quickly was attracted to the process of creating things, not just designing them, but actually fabricating them. And like a lot of kids who would later get into fields like engineering, Johnny would take stuff apart to learn how it worked. I don't know what his success rate was for putting it back together again, but he certainly took it apart to understand how things worked. His father would teach him how to sketch out ideas before committing to build them. And that gave Johnny an appreciation of design. He would ask his father endless questions about how things were built and why they were built the way that they were. So not just how did they put this together, but why did they choose this method over some alternative method? When he was still a child, his family relocated to a rural neighborhood about two hours north of London. Johnny enrolled in a school called Walton High School, where he continued to develop his skills in art and design. Uh, He also became active in various social issues like feminism and things of that nature. Uh, He wasn't nearly as strong in most of the traditional curriculum at school, but that really didn't concern him very much because from the beginning, his plan was to attend a technical college after high school and a technical college wouldn't require high marks in those classic subjects. I've also attended a summer program that had a focus on design with I've learning more advanced drafting techniques as in like draftsmanship. Uh, So it married his love of art with his love of design and engineering. And as a senior project, 
I've said about designing a working portable projector. Uh, so the projectors that were being used in his high school were these big, heavy things. They're very clunky and cumbersome. You couldn't easily move them from classroom to classroom. So I've thought, here's a challenge. Here's, here's something that I can solve. I can create a projector that is portable, that's easier to move around. So he made a projector that when it was in its collapsed form was like a briefcase, you know, a pretty heavy one. And when it opened, hydraulic arms would unfold the projector and it would emerge into place as a fully working projector. And people who saw it said that just watching it kind of unfold itself was a very satisfying experience. Like everything moved just so. And it was like an early example of Ives' attention to detail and creating things that have a pleasing effect on the person looking at them. Anyone who is familiar with Apple products knows that that's a big selling point for the stuff that's come out over the last couple of decades. I've attended Newcastle Polytechnic, largely thanks to a scholarship that was provided by a guy named Philip Gray. Philip Gray was a managing director for Robert's Weaver Group. That's an architecture firm in the UK. And part of this deal was that I've would agree to work at Robert's Weaver Group as an intern while attending college and then would work there full time after graduation for some amount of time. I'm not sure how much, but that was all part of the agreement. Now, one story Mickle relays in his book uh, after Steve is particularly amusing while he was at college, Ive was living on a pretty tight budget, and he also had a long-distance girlfriend whom he would write to regularly. Now, this is in you know the mid-1980s, before the real days of texting and email, so we wrote letters to each other back in those days. Physical letters. Now, I've decided to attempt something somewhat cheeky. He didn't know if it was going to work. He drew the picture of a stamp on an envelope. And it was in all ways with a normal stamp, you know, identical. Like he, he copied it precisely and just drew it directly on the envelope itself, put a letter to his girlfriend in there, sent the letter off. And she sent back a response, which told Ive that he could sketch a convincing enough copy of an official stamp to fool the post office into carrying the mail to its destination. And I'm a little tickled that the guy who would later be largely responsible for how popular certain Apple products would become was playing with counterfeiting back when he was in college. Uh, there's more to that story, but I'm going to leave that to Mickle's book to flesh it out. So if you want to hear more about that and the silly turn it took, you should check out the book. While the style at the time, as Grandpa Simpson would say, was to favor a chaotic collection of shapes and bright colors... That wasn't Ives' preference. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, in the 1980s, things went a bit haywire in the design world. All you have to do, just go on a search engine and search for 1980s style. That's all you have to put in, and you will see what I mean. It was a, a troubled time of different shapes and, and neon colors in no particular organized form, and I've hated all of that chaos. He preferred the more simple linear style of an earlier movement within art and architecture and, and uh, uh, products even called Bauhaus. Now that's not the band with Peter Murphy in which we would learn that Bella Lugosi's dead. 
that is an amazing song and a phenomenal band. And if you don't know it, well, I think I just outed myself as a goth. Anyway, I'm talking more about an art and architectural movement that originated in Germany. The focus in Bauhaus was to find a synthesis of aesthetic and function. And that's really what I've preferred to just those weird shapes and colors of the dominant 1980s designs. He saw those as being ugly and grotesque and superfluous and unnecessary. He he felt that you really should have a product where everything that is in that product is necessary for that product in some way, that less is more. Meanwhile, I was getting practical experience uh, as an intern at the Roberts Weaver group firm. He received assignments to create pitches for clients. So he wasn't just, you know, running errands or running support for designers there. He was actually put in charge of a few projects. I would bristle whenever someone would ask him to compromise on his design. And he didn't really like doing that. It was something that kind of revealed to him that design consultant is a tough gig because you are not the final voice on the approach to design. Your your client has input, and that can be a difficult thing. I respect this because as someone who is a writer, uh, there were times when I would submit articles to an editor and receive feedback, and my first response was always to get angry at the feedback. Not a mature response, uh, but it was how I would feel. I would think like, oh, they don't get what I'm going for here. Usually that wasn't really the case because I, unlike Ive, am not brilliant. Ive, however, bristled because he felt that he really did have the best idea and he hated having to compromise on that. That also meant that some other folks over at the Roberts uh, Weaver group felt that he probably wasn't a good fit for the company because the secret to being a great consultant is being adaptable and being able to, you know, incorporate client feedback into designs. So they felt that maybe this would not be the right fit for him. Now, one thing that I've encountered around this time was an Apple Macintosh computer. Those originally were launched in 1984. He admired the design of the computer and he loved the marketing campaign that launched the Macintosh. Now, in case y'all don't remember, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this commercial because it was a famous commercial directed by Ridley Scott, of all people. And it played during the Super Bowl in 1984, so it really got a lot of eyeballs on it. But in case that's well before your time, you don't know what I'm talking about. The commercial played off the oppressive themes of George Orwell's 1984, the novel 1984. So in this commercial... Everything looks very gray and dim. And you have this group of drone-like employees who are clad in this baggy gray clothing shuffling into a theater. And there a film is playing that consists of a close-up of a man's face. And that man is yelling out essentially fascist propaganda that also stresses that conformity is key. Then a woman runs in, this athletic woman holding a sledgehammer, and she does a hammer throw. She twirls around and throws the sledgehammer through the screen. And then you hear a narrator say, quote, On January 24th, Apple will introduce the Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 
1984. End quote. And the commercial is, again, one of the most famous of all time. It implied that the PC industry was one of forced uniformity, and there was no personality to the products. And the ad didn't even show the Macintosh computer itself. The Macintosh is nowhere to be seen in this original version of the commercial. The ad just claimed that Apple was going to forge a new path all on its own, and I've absolutely loved the advertisement. Now, before he would graduate Newcastle Polytechnic, I've had to present what the college referred to as a blue sky project. This was meant to show off a design without having to worry about the constraints of actually being able to make the thing. So students were given a lot of leeway. They could they could propose things that weren't necessarily technically possible at the time. I've thought up of a way to pay for items using a medallion-like device that could, when brought into close contact with a point-of-sale register, transmit payment wirelessly. So he was essentially thinking about a way to replace credit cards and to have a more elegant means of being able to, to transfer funds. And it was a predecessor to contactless payment that would evolve many, many years later. Ives' design intrigued the judge invited to score student submissions to the point where, according to Mickle's book, that judge so impressed asked how high a score he could give Ive. And traditionally, a 70 would be considered an A. And the judge was told he could score it however he thought was appropriate. So he gave Ive a 90, when usually 70 would be the, the top result, which is a big old yowza. All right, we've got a lot more to say about Johnny Ives' early days, including his move to Apple. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Okay, we're up to 1990, and that was a a year that would bring a big change to Johnny Ives' life. Uh, The Roberts Weaver Group folded. There was a big financial crisis in the UK, a recession, and one of the victims of that recession was this consulting firm, the Roberts Weaver Group. So I was no longer obligated to work at this company because the company had essentially gone away. So instead, he joined a design consultancy company called Tangerine, lowercase t. Kind of funny that he would take on a gig at a company named after one type of fruit and then would become famous for working at a different company named after a different kind of fruit. In fact, he would make the transfer from one directly to the other. Clive Grenier who had met Ive a couple of years earlier, was largely responsible for recruiting Ive to join Tangerine. And Ive quickly got to work on several different projects, including one that was to design sinks, sink basins, really. That one didn't go so well because Ive's very um, remarkable pitch was one that the company just wasn't comfortable adopting. It was a little too aggressive in its departure from tradition. And that's another case where I was getting a little frustrated that as a consultant, he couldn't necessarily design something and have it stay his design and have it remain unchanged, that he would have to bow to client wishes. So he then was brought in on a project called Juggernaut. And Juggernaut was a project that involved uh, Grenier. It also involved one of the co-founders of the company and Ive. And the client, in this case, was a tiny little computer company called Apple. Juggernaut was a project aiming to create some novel computer and tablet designs. I think there were four devices in total, including a tablet, with a, a separate keyboard, uh, a couple of portable computers, a couple of desktop computers, that kind of thing. I was in charge of mainly working on the tablet concept. And he was also given the task to pack up and ship the prototypes, which they made out of styrofoam, and send those to Apple. So I've took meticulous care in packaging these prototypes. You know, he wrapped each one very carefully. He packed them into the box so that there'd be no chance of them being damaged unless, you know, something crazy happened to the box. He even included some folded tangerine branded shirts in the box as well. And this was a very early example of making the process of unboxing a Johnny Ive designed project a real experience that 
that it would show that there was an incredible amount of consideration in just the packaging of the product, but let alone the design of the product. This would be something that Apple would embrace after Ive would join the company, largely really after Ive joined the company and Steve Jobs would return to it. Apple was impressed with this presentation and the designs, and they invited the Tangerine team to come out to California and to present their ideas in person. So Johnny Ive got to go to California. I think that at that point, it was his second time traveling to California. He had already been there once and found it really appealing. Well, while he was there, Ive was taken aside a couple of times uh, by Apple executives and essentially told that he had a job with Apple if he wanted one, that he could come over and join their team. His colleagues over at Tangerine would tell him back in the UK that really he had no options. He had to take up that offer. They were very generous in saying, this is an incredible opportunity. You will do amazing things there. You should take the job. So in the fall of 1992, I would relocate. He would change his home address from London to San Francisco, and he would join Apple. Now, the Apple of 1992 was very different from the Apple of today, 30 years later. In fact, it was really different from the Apple of 2007, that's when the iPhone debuted, or even the Apple of 2001, when the company unveiled the iPod. The Apple of 1992, while founded by some somewhat rebellious techno-anarchist types, which might be going a bit far, but Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak both enjoyed thumbing their noses at respectability and authority back in the day. Well, now that company was in the hands of a different set of leaders altogether. So it's probably a good idea to do a quick rundown on what had happened at Apple, because that's a very important component of this overall story. So we're going to give a Cliff's Notes version of Apple's history leading up to 1992 and a little bit beyond, actually. So back in the 1970s, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak created a partnership and then later brought in another person named Mike Markula to turn that partnership into Apple Incorporated. Now, the first Apple model was really more of a, a hobbyist kit than a out-of-the-box computer. And while hobbyists were interested in the Apple One, that really wasn't a suitable product for the mainstream. And that would change dramatically with the introduction of the Apple II line, a fully built computer system. And ultimately, the Apple II line would include numerous offshoots. You know, you had the, like the Apple IIc, the Apple IIe, the Apple IIg, and the list goes on. The Apple II would be a truly enormous success for the young company. So Jobs and Wozniak founded Apple, but neither of them would be the person to lead the company. Mike Markula, who I said earlier, he was a primary investor in Apple. He owned like 26% of Apple in the early days. He brought in a guy named Michael Scott, not that one, to serve as the first CEO for Apple. Because uh, Markula felt that neither Jobs nor Wozniak really had the experience to lead a, a company. They, they had the vision, but not the know-how. So Michael Scott would serve as CEO until 1981. By then, he had made some serious waves in the company and, and some pretty pretty big enemies as well. Uh, in early 1981, he famously fired about 
half the team responsible for designing the Apple II because he said they were redundant. He said, we don't need all these people because the folks that we've got, like we've got twice as many as we need. Let's get rid of them. Uh, He also made some pretty harsh comments about it. He at one point had said that as soon as it stops being fun working for Apple, he was going to quit. And instead he said, you know what? I've rethought it. Uh, Now I figure I'm going to keep firing people uh, in order to make it more fun to work at Apple, which that's pretty brutal. Like, I'm sure it was kind of an off-the-cuff humorous remark, but it comes across as as pretty nasty when you consider this is the livelihood of people we're talking about here. So he was effectively removed from power after making that statement, though he would actually stay on for several more months before officially retiring. Uh, Markula would take over as CEO duties for the time being, which would actually stretch on for a couple of years, at which point the company would then bring on a man named John Scully to be the new CEO and president. And it was Scully's involvement that would lead to Steve Jobs leaving Apple. So Jobs was already proving to be a marketing genius. Uh, He was known more for his feel for design, his vision of what could be popular, and his ability to sell those designs rather than as, say, an engineer or a computer scientist. So he wasn't really thought of as the person who could make stuff work. He was the person who could see how a particular presentation of technology could have a really powerful impact on customers. Uh, Jobs had seen designs at the Xerox PARC facility, that's P-A-R-C, and those designs convinced him to incorporate some of those ideas into Apple products. You could say that Steve Jobs effectively stole ideas like, you know, the computer mouse and the graphics user interface from things that he saw at the Xerox Park facility. Or you could just say he was inspired by it. Really just depends on your point of view. And his work to to do this, like his work to make this computer a thing, made Jobs something of a target for Scully, who had come over from PepsiCo, in order to lead Apple. Jobs had a reputation of being very difficult to work with, and as he spearheaded projects that would evolve into a very unsuccessful computer platform called Lisa, it was a very expensive computer, didn't sell well at all, and was considered a flop, an expensive flop at Apple. He also had uh, a, a real direct hand in the much more successful Macintosh platform, but Jobs' involvement with Macintosh was really disruptive too. You had the existing Macintosh team that had been working on the computer system before Jobs essentially invaded and took over the project. And this caused an enormous amount of disruption within that team. Uh, Those stories are pretty fascinating on their own, but, you know, it goes beyond what we want to talk about today. So the Apple board of directors became concerned about Steve Jobs because the projects he was heading up were costing a huge amount of money but they had a questionable record when it came to success in the actual marketplace. And Scully was told that he needed to contain Jobs. And ultimately, Scully would strip Jobs of most of his authority, pushing him to the periphery of Apple. Uh, And Markula actually sided with Scully, the guy who had originally invested in Jobs and Wozniak's idea, ended up siding with the new leader of Apple. And Jobs hurt and infuriated, left the company in 1985, 
there's some versions of the story that say that he was effectively fired or at least given so little to do that he had he was in, at least in in practical terms no longer working for Apple. There are other versions where he took a much more active stance and and quit in um the company because of this this opposition he faced. So it really again depends upon whom you believe. The the outcome is the same either way. And I don't think it ultimately matters. Um it does sound like Scully did Jobs dirty, but Jobs himself what didn't do many favors for himself by being um somewhat difficult to work with. Now let's flash forward to 1992. We were in 85 when Jobs left the company. By 92 Apple had been operating without either of its co-founders for seven years because Wozniak had effectively left Apple in 1981 after he had been severely injured in a plane crash. And in a more official capacity, he left in 1985, but he, to this day, remains an Apple employee in a largely symbolic capacity. So 1992 would be the last full year of Scully leading Apple. He had initiated a project to create what he called a personal digital assistant or PDA. And yeah, Scully or someone on his team was the first to coin that term. And that would become the Apple Newton message pad, a product that would later invite ridicule due to overpromising and underdelivering, particularly when it came to handwriting recognition. Scully had also made the decision for Apple to transition to run on the PowerPC microprocessor. That was a decision that would send Apple down a very rocky path. Uh, in fact, it was so rocky that ultimately it would threaten to bankrupt the company. Now, I've joined Apple just as tensions in the company were growing with different leaders and different departments playing tug of war of where the company should go. Scully would essentially get ushered out of Apple in early 1993, and a German leader named Michael Spindler came in to replace him. Now, at the time... Apple was on unsteady financial ground, having sunk a lot of money into the development of the Newton, which had turned out to be a flop, and had also experimented in other types of consumer hardware like digital cameras, and those experiments had also largely failed. So Spindler made another decision that further hurt the company. He allowed other companies to build clones of Apple products. Now, until this point, Apple was very careful to hold on to its own intellectual property. The company took a totally different route than what IBM did. See, IBM had used off-the-shelf components to build its personal computers. But that meant that other companies could also use those same components, plus get a licensed copy of the same operating system, or, or nearly the same, as what IBM was using, and build IBM clones. There was nothing to stop them. There was no reason because there was nothing IBM trademarked on any of those things. They were all products that you could just buy and assemble yourself. The IBM clone market was largely responsible for convincing IBM to get out of the computer, you know, the consumer computer space. And Apple had dodged that problem by keeping everything in-house until Spindler came in and changed course. Spindler would eventually get pushed out of Apple himself and a new CEO named Gil Emilio would come in. I'll talk more about him and his effects on Apple and then how this ties into Johnny Ive as well after we come back from this break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. 
Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Okay, where we left off, Gil Emilio had just become CEO, replacing Spindler. And Emilio was known for rehabilitating companies that were in financial trouble. And by this point, Apple was starting to flirt with bankruptcy. He would make more massive cuts to the budget. He would hold layoffs across the company. Uh, he authorized projects aimed at updating the operating system on Macintosh computers. And those projects would end up languishing due to feature creep and internal struggles in Apple. Uh, it was another one of those cases where something going on inside Apple had the capacity to take the whole company down. Things looked really grim. So Apple's board of directors decided that Apple should acquire a little computer company called Next. Big N, little E, big X, big T. That company was founded by, drumroll please, Steve Jobs. The idea was that the operating system for Next computers, which were really interesting computers, but they were super expensive and they weren't really selling well, but that the operating system would become the foundation for the new Mac OS, that the project that Emilio had launched, which was kind of mired in internal politics, would get pushed aside, and the next operating system 
would be used as the the bedrock for macOS. That meant that Steve Jobs came on board Apple as an advisor. But he didn't stay an advisor for very long. Steve Jobs was actually able to wrest control of the company away from Emilio. Technically, there was a another CEO between Emilio and Jobs, but there's <laughs> not really much point in talking about him. So he, he leveraged the company's terrible market performance into an argument that only he, Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, would be able to set the company right. So Steve Jobs would become the interim CEO of Apple, and not that long afterward, he would become just the plain old CEO. Like he would, there would be nothing interim about it. He would become the CEO. Now, I give you that truncated history of Apple because it's during these tumultuous years, the end of Scully's leadership at the company, the rise and fall of Spindler and Emilio, and the return of Jobs that I've began to establish himself within the company. And honestly, knowing what we do about what was going on at Apple and how talented Ive is as a person, it is more than a little bit surprising that he actually endured all of that chaos and that he stuck around long enough to have the opportunity to help redefine Apple's place in computers and, and personal electronics uh, along with Steve Jobs' return. It's amazing he lasted that long. So when Ive started in 1992, he was just the ninth member of Apple's design team. One of his first assignments was to work on the design of the second generation Newton message pad device. So Ive thought the first generation of the Newton was really too bulky. It was too unusual. It didn't feel good to hold and that it lacked an aesthetic appeal that would invite users to pick up the device and actually use it. So Ives' design would win him tons of awards. Like he redesigned the Newton message pad. He overhauled how it looked and how the cover would work with the device. He turned it into more like a, uh, a, a spiral tablet notebook, you know, like an actual physical notebook with paper in it. And the lid of the Newton message pad in this one would flip over the top on, on a hinge and fold against the back of the device. And in that hinge, you would nestle the stylus for the device. Because this, this is a tablet computer where you actually did have to use a stylus in order to interact with the tablet itself. And um, yeah, he got lots of, of accolades for this design. People thought that it was a, a, a brilliant approach. However, the product's continuing issues with handwriting recognition uh, really plagued the device, and it just it it was really raked over the coals critically. Now, in case if you don't remember the Newton, the whole idea was that you had a tablet computer that could accept your handwriting as input. So you would use a stylus, you would jot down notes on the screen, you know, writing it out in longhand, and the computer would detect the movements of the stylus against the screen and interpret that as letters, and then create a text version of whatever it was you were writing on the screen. But the handwriting recognition wasn't very good. So using a Newton could be frustrating. So frustrating that the Simpsons made a whole joke about it in an episode. Eat up, Martha, instead of beat up Martin. So I've had made the physical act of holding a Newton more pleasing, but the operation still fell far short. And to be clear, that was something that was totally out of Ive's control. He was working on the physical product design, not on the operating system or the software. Now, reportedly, Ive was initially frustrated, and by some 
accounts, he was miserable at Apple during this time period. And I said that it was remarkable that he didn't quit in those chaotic days, but by some accounts, there were numerous times where he did consider quitting and was only convinced not to by his team leader, uh, who is a man named uh, uh, Robert Bruner. He was the director of industrial design at the time, who was kind of telling Ive, like, you need to stick around because things are going to change at this company, which was truly prophetic. So under Spindler, Apple's process had shifted from really focusing on aesthetics to focusing on performance with more of an emphasis on processor speed and less care given to the design of the computers themselves. Uh, Really all about efficiency and power, which is such a stereotypical thing to associate with a German leader that I hesitated to even talk about it because it does feed into a stereotype. But in this case, that actually was what was going on. The idea was, oh, the actual physical design of these things, the appearance of them, that doesn't matter as much as how fast they are, how powerful they are. And I imagine for Ive, that had to have been torture. The design process was also chopped up. Uh, The team would have about half the time to go through the design process as they did before Spindler had become CEO. And like I said, Robert Bruner was the director of industrial design at the time and was the leader of the team. And he would stay on with Apple until 96 slash 97. He was one of Ive's mentors and really one of the chief reasons why Ive was brought over to Apple in the first place. And he had a lot of faith in Ive, which was really evident with what Bruner would then assign to Ive. Ive was put in charge of refining the design for a Macintosh celebrating Apple's 20th anniversary. The anniversary Macintosh, in other words. Ive plunged himself into the project. He looked at leaders and products across different industries, like products like speakers, to determine what designs were best and how Apple could learn from and then even improve upon the work that was being done by other companies. And he began to evaluate everything from the curve of the computer case to the materials that would be used for the computer itself. And Ives' finished design was beyond opulent. It was really taking design to the next level. The keyboard featured leather pads upon which users could rest their weary wrists Uh, The keyboard was separate from the rest of the computer. And so you just, which was unusual uh, for Apple at the time, because a lot of earlier Apple products, not all of them, but a lot of them had keyboards that were built directly into the computer case itself. So it was all like one big unit. The old Apple IIs were like that. Uh, It also had a trackpad. It was sort of the, the first Macintosh to have its own trackpad. Uh, The computer's body was made out of a mixture of metal and parts and plastic and other parts, including plastic that had metal flaking inside the plastic. It had a flat panel display. It was the first Apple desktop to have a flat panel display. It was a LCD display. In some ways, you could see the foundation for what would become the iMac several years later lurking in Ive's design of this computer. It also had a side-loading drive. Uh, It it could have a floppy drive or it could have a CD-ROM drive. It had ports for television connectivity as well as ones that you could use to connect to an external sound system. But the computer itself 
sported prominent speakers to either side of the display, as well as its own subwoofer. And it was uh, a sound system that was designed and provided by Bose. So it had a, a good reputation behind it. That subwoofer was separate from the rest of the computer. It also served as the power source for the device. So sort of like the power brick, you might think of it that way. Ive's team had worked very hard to make sure every single element was obviously intentional, that each point on the computer system was the product of informed decisions. The computer was attractive. It took up less space than other desktop computers at the time. It used much higher quality materials for everything from the chassis to the leather on the keyboard to the fabric that was covering the speakers. It had a cable management system built onto the back of the computer display slash speakers slash, you know, drives. Uh, And this was to help avoid the problem of having this beautiful design marred by a rat's nest of cables behind it. So it was really a testament to Ive's approach to design, that whole idea of less is more. But less is more did not apply to the computer's price tag. Apple identified the target audience for this premier Macintosh, the anniversary Macintosh, as being the quote-unquote executive market, presumably because only executives would ever be able to afford it. The retail price for the computer at at the base model was just under $7,500. Uh, That, by the way, was actually a markdown because the original price was predicted to be $9,000. Now, that's already really expensive if we're just talking about how much you would pay for a computer today. But we also need to adjust for inflation because this was in 1997 on the 20th anniversary of Apple's incorporation. So if we adjust those figures for $2,022, we see that the original predicted price, which had been set at $9,000, in today's dollars, that would be $16,600. The adjusted price, that $7,500 price tag, that would be the more reasonable $13,800 for that computer. So this anniversary edition of the Macintosh, or really the anniversary of Apple, not the anniversary of the Macintosh, but the anniversary of the company itself, $13,800. As for the sales figures for the anniversary edition of the Macintosh, you can probably guess that that high price tag meant not very many units were sold. Uh, According to Mickel's book, Apple sold around 11,000 units total. I'm actually shocked that it was that many. Um, Also, reviewers kind of really criticized this particular computer, not for its physical design so much. That wasn't really where they were sticking the criticism. It was more on the various functions of the computer and its features. They said that it wasn't particularly sophisticated compared to other computers at the time, that there were some technical downfalls of this machine. And so it didn't, it wasn't considered a success either financially or critically. Although Ives approach was really unique. And like I said, it set the ground for future Apple products too. So Bruner, the director of industrial design at Apple, would actually leave the company while this anniversary edition of the Macintosh was still in development. Bruner had grown tired of the meetings and the politics within the company. So he recommended to his boss that Johnny Ive be named the new director of industrial design at Apple. Apparently the original plan 
was to do a talent search across top companies around the world to bring in a new director. But Bruner warned that unless the promotion happened from within the department, Apple would be in danger of losing the whole design team. And ultimately, Ive would get the job. This was a pretty remarkable rise. Ive had joined Apple in late 92, and by 97 had become the head of his department, had become a director at the company. This coincided with the lowest point in Apple's history prior to the return of Steve Jobs. The tumultuous years at Apple under the rotating cast of CEOs was really destructive to the company. The company's co-founder, a man with singular vision, was on the verge of coming back. And Ive would end up having a prominent role in the development of the company moving forward. But that was not always a guarantee, because when Jobs first came back, before even becoming the interim CEO, he was at a meeting where he criticized the company's output in front of other Apple executives, including Johnny Ive. He complained that the, the designs had shifted to being these boring, utilitarian, and unremarkable form factors, something that was kind of hard to argue against because that's really where the focus had been. He seemed intent on overhauling Apple's entire design department, and that would include cleaning house and getting rid of many of the designers who were there, including potentially Johnny Ive, who had just become the director. So Ive, as the department's new director, had to step up to justify the existence of his team. That consisted of top designers who had come to Apple from some of the most prestigious design firms from around the world. So Ive and his team were really worried that they were soon to be replaced. And Ive even went so far as to float the idea to his team about creating a design firm should they find themselves unemployed in the near future. But he also stressed that they should wait to hear Jobs' own decision about that first. And so things were kind of left up in the air until Jobs would pay a visit to the design team's office. And that's where we're going to leave off for this episode. Now, I know that in the grand scheme of things, that's not much of a cliffhanger, because we all know Johnny Ive would remain at Apple and be instrumental in the company's fortunes moving forward. But I figure we can at least pretend that there's some sort of tension there. And at the very least, you can wonder, how the heck did Ive convince Steve Jobs that the design team had a lot to contribute and wasn't fully to blame for the bland products Apple was known for prior to Steve Jobs' return? We're going to leave that for the next episode. And we'll continue talking about the role that Johnny Ive played in some of the most iconic products to come out of Apple, ones that would reposition Apple in the mind of the public and of the media. Because at this point in Apple's history, the company was really in danger of becoming a non-entity. A lot of people had just written off the possibility of Apple ever being relevant ever again. So there was a remarkable turn of fortune that was to come. And while a lot of people would lay that at the feet of Steve Jobs, he was not the only reason why Apple was able to make a truly amazing recovery. We'll talk more about that in the next episode in this series. If you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me. There are a couple of ways to do that. One is you can download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. Um, and if you navigate over to the tech stuff part of that app, you'll see a little microphone icon. 
Clicking on that will let you record up to 30 seconds of a voice message to me. You can even let me know if I can use that voice message in a future episode, and you can make requests there. Or if you prefer, you can reach out over Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.